Who am I in the eyes of most people? A nobody, a non-entity, an unpleasant person. Well then, even if all of that was absolutely true, then one day I would like to show by my work what this nobody, this non-entity, has in his heart. From the studios of KPFK Los Angeles, Pacifica Radio, welcome to Poets Cafe. We're here with director and producer Hugh Welchman of the groundbreaking film Loving Vincent, newly released worldwide. For listeners, Loving Vincent, set a year after Vincent van Gogh's death, is the world's first fully painted feature animation at 12 frames per second. The film totals over 65,000 individual oil paintings executed by 125 professional painters from all over the world. So welcome, welcome to Poets Cafe, Hugh. It's very fine to be here. <laughs> I had an adventure getting here. <laughs> yeah, you did, right? Yeah, I got lost in one of your canyons on the top <laughs> of a hill. So I arrived here with brambles all over me. But, uh, you know, it was an exciting start to, to this uh, adventure of this interview. Yes. You know, this has really been a dream for me because I've seen the evolution of uh, Loving Vincent as a film over time. I, when the call came out for the painters, I looked at my little sketches, you know. I haven't done any oil paintings, but mm. I thought, oh, God, if I could just drop everything and do that right now. Yeah. Well, it's amazing that so many people actually did because um, our production is based in Poland. Yes. And in the beginning, we were just going to be using painters from Poland, and, and then we realized we needed a lot more painters. Mm -hmm. And so we, we were really advertising in Ukraine and Greece because they have very similar educational systems to Poland and, and people can actually specialize in oil painting for uh, up to five, six years of further education. And then somehow our advert went viral <laughs> and uh, there was 200 million people who viewed our kind of recruitment trailer. Wow. Uh, and that ended uh, with us having 4,000 new applications from oil painters around the world. Mm. And, you know, uh, we did actually have uh, six who made the journey from North America, Fantastic. Uh, two of them from California. And, you know, they dropped everything and mm -hmm. they came over to do a three day audition. Mm. Uh, thankfully, they all passed. And, you know, we wouldn't have invited people from from such a long way away unless we thought that it was highly likely they were going to pass the audition. Uh, then they had 200 hours of intensive training in Van Gogh style and, and painting animation. And then we let them loose on the production. And um, so we had uh, six people from North America. We had someone from Australia from Japan, two people from India. Mm -hmm. In total, we had people from 20 countries. That's fantastic. Was it difficult to whittle it down? I know your wife, uh, Dorota, who also co-produced and co-directed the film with you, is also a painter herself, um, a kind of originated through her in some ways, didn't it? Oh, totally. I mean, yeah. you know, it really, there was this point of crisis in her life 10 years ago. She was 29. She had studied and, and worked as a painter since she was a teenager. Then after she graduated, uh, she she found all her paid work in animation and visual effects. And, and she was doing that for like four or five years. And she just thought she'd lost her way. Mm -hmm. And she really wanted to go back to painting. And, and she was working on other people's projects. And she felt that, you know, she'd let herself down creatively. And, and so 
Um, she she decided that she was going to combine her passion for painting, her passion for film, and she was going to paint a film, and it was going to be a short film. And quite quickly after making that decision, she decided that she was going to do it on Vincent van Gogh. I mean, Dorota first read the letters when she was 15. She first visited the Van Gogh Museum when she was 16. She did her dissertation um, in her early 20s on the link between um, mental illness and creativity, and uh, one of the main subjects was, was Vincent. So he'd been a, an, an important artist throughout her teenage years and, and also her, her 20s. And so, But when she turned to his letters, when she was 29 it had special poignancy because yeah. Vincent actually started painting when he was 29 he, he made the decision that he wanted to move to being an artist when he was 27 but it started out that he thought he would do illustrations for magazines and it was only at 29 that he was like right this is what I'm going to do mm. I'm going to be a painter after his fourth career kind of move right absolutely he'd yeah. failed miserably at four careers he was written off by his sort of middle class Dutch family as, yeah. as a no-hoper and he just had real conviction and willpower and, and passion to start something new at that age and, and you know in the space of eight years before his untimely death he, he transformed the course of art forever really in terms of that very personalised vision of art so Dorot was incredibly inspired by that and also uh, Vincent is uniquely suitable for bringing his paintings to life to tell his story because his paintings are so personal and he painted everything around him so if you think of Rembrandt, for example, I mean, obviously he painted his wife, he did some self-portraits, but it'd be very hard to get a picture of where he lived and what was happening at the time right. from his paintings, even though his paintings are you know, gorgeous and fantastic. Whereas Vincent, you know, he painted his bedroom, he painted the view from his bedroom, right. he painted his shoes, he painted his food, he painted the person who was serving his food, he painted his letters, he painted the person who was delivering his letters. It was really all the places around the places he was staying, the night cafes that he would hang out in. You can really get a picture of his world because he painted so fast. If you think of someone like... Um, Goya, you know, painted for 60 years and, and he did 800 paintings. And uh, in six years, Vincent did 800 paintings, you yeah. know. So he was incredibly prolific and in which that was why we could build up this picture of this world in a way that we couldn't with any other painter. But she was going to do it as a short film and she was going to paint it all herself. And, uh, you know, then she met me. Uh, we fell in love. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I fell in love with her project. And, and I was just amazed by the look of it, really. And I'd been doing animation for 10 years at that point, And I never seen something that fascinated me so much the, the way the oil painting kind of brought the characters to life so I was kind of lobbying her that we should do it as a feature film because you know with a feature film you can just reach a much yeah. larger audience um, than you can with a, with a short film. What an incredible task to take that on and you included over a hundred of his paintings Right. Um, uh, it ended up being seventy-seven. Okay, seventy-seven. Uh, so we have seventy in the in the you know the present, which is Vincent's world, Vincent's style, and and then seven we recreated in the flashbacks, the the black and white style in the film. I know you had live action shots. Obviously, you had the storyline. You had to come up with the storyline for the film. Which, um, if you're just tuning in, listeners, I'm speaking with Hugh Welchman. He's the co-director and co-producer of the magnificent film. Loving Vincent, which is out in the theaters right now. And if you have not seen it, run, run, run to see it. Because even though it's coming out in video, I've ordered my copy. You want to see this on the big screen. You must see it on the big screen. So, you know, you know you have this concept. You want to bring this to film. Then you have to have a storyline. How did you decide 
for example, to work on uh, the year after his death? How did it become sort of a noir piece? Film is a storytelling medium, so story is always king in film. And mm-hmm. so even in a film like ours, where uh, you're bringing to life paintings and, and you have an incredible visual style, still, you can only really go ahead with it if the story works. The hardest part of this whole project was writing the script mm-hmm. because not only did we have to come up with a good script, but we had to make sure that it uh, hit certain frames of the paintings and included the paintings and, and then included them in a natural way so you didn't feel like we were just unnecessarily <laughs> right. diverting you to look at this pretty picture. Mm. And also... Uh, We had to be uh, respectful of history because um, we're talking about a real person and we're talking about real people. So so we're bringing to life the portraits and those of the people around him, the people that he painted. And how the mystery story came about was was really very organic. From the beginning, Dorota decided that it was going to be concentrated on on his final weeks in Auvers. Uh, She wanted to do the Auvers period. And it was going to be bringing his paintings to life to tell his story. Mm -hmm. So that means bringing to life the people that he painted. And so we were researching these real people like Dr. Gachet, like Adeline Raveau, and some of them gave statements about Vincent. Very often it was after his death, mm-hmm. and these statements contradicted each other. So we then had to become detectives ourselves to work out who was telling the truth, who was misremembering what happened, who was maybe inflating their role in the eyes of history, and who maybe was hiding a dark secret. So we started doing this research, and also we were very perplexed about why Vincent committed suicide at that particular point in his life, because Mm -hmm. on the surface, things were going better for him at that point than other points in his adult life. I mean, you know, he was lonely. He was worried about whether his mental illness would come back. But on the other hand, he was in better physical health than he'd been for a decade. He'd been released from the mental uh, asylum as cured. He loved children and, you know, he he just had his uh, nephew uh, named after him. Mm -hmm. So his beloved brother's son had just been born and, and named after him. And most importantly, he'd sold a painting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this had been his ambition for the, the previous eight years. And uh, he'd just sold his painting for a reasonable sum of money, two months of what it took him to live. And he'd had a very promising review by an avant-garde critic. And he'd been proclaimed by Monet, who was already a very successful selling painter at the time, as the bright hope of the new painters. So right. amongst painters, uh, he was already being seen as uh, an upcoming success. Mm-hmm. So, you know... Why would he, at the point where he was just accomplishing or starting to accomplish what he really wanted to, why would he take his life at that point? So we were looking into that, and we were really trying to get inside his mind. And at that point, Nafer Whitesmith, they brought out this biography in 2010. I think we're already on, like, script number three at that point, or draft three. And uh, they revived a rumour from the early 20th century that uh, he didn't then kill himself. You know, in, in fact, you know, he was shot by uh, teenage boys. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that there isn't actually any physical evidence for this, but 
the narrative they put forward does fill in some of the holes that exist on Vincent's last day of life, um, particularly what happened to all of his stuff, um, his painting gear that he took with him that day. Uh, why did no one see him go to the fields, which is where uh, he said he shot himself, be passed out there for hours or, or come back from the fields when it was right next to a church on a Sunday? Right. And, you know, people went to church uh, back then. So mm-hmm. um, it was a busy area. And also, why would you know a right-handed man shoot himself sort of in an awkward position on the left side of his ribs? So when that came out and there was this big academic argument about whether it's, it's a possibility or not, that this was, again, you know, more layers of mystery into yeah. the story. And that actually by looking at him after his death and looking back on him from different points of view and, and, you know, the people in the film have different points of view of what happened to him and what he was like, then we could really explore who he was, you know, who he was in life by uh, reflecting on him after his death, which very often happens. I mean, you know, very often people take people for granted around them. Sure. And then you have the shock of someone dying and then everyone takes stock and, and thinks, why didn't we appreciate this person more while and he was re- alive? You really feel that in the characters so well. You feel their loss, their perspective, their engagement with him. So you learn more about Vincent through the characters. And I like what you say about being respectful also to history which allows for some play, obviously, in what you did, but also keeping as much as you could to the facts of what happened to honor him in that way. Yeah, uh, wherever possible, we wanted to to use actual quotes from his letters. So we we kind of insert uh, passages from his letters into the mouths of the characters in the film. Obviously, we directly quote from three of his letters with Vincent reading them out. Also, we we only wanted to have theories that are, are currently credibly being discussed right you know at the moment there was something that uh, i noticed for example the ear so right the lobe and then the whole entire ear and i started reading that book by the way bernadette murphy yeah yeah and uh, that was interesting as well you know so most people thought it was just the lobe that he caught but it was actually the whole ear, the whole yeah, ear. and yeah, that was kind of annoying for us. I mean, oh, I, was it? <laughs> well, I, I, I love it when you know new facts come out. Okay. Uh, it's like always uh, amazes me that you can have so many scholars dedicated to researching his life, and there's still so many mysteries involved in a person's life. And but yeah, Bernadette Murphy, she actually found conclusive proof while we were in production on painting the, the film that he'd cut off whole of his ear, and we'd actually painted it that uh, he'd only cut off the the bottom third of his ear which was the accepted oh, painted it that way. <laughs> which was the oh, accepted theory right. when we started so we actually went back into the film and, and did a touch up on the ear for 3000 frames oh, repainted wow. it painted it out for 3000 frames so that it would be consistent with what we know now to be the historical fact of the matter and really it was uh, so incumbent upon the artist to have those paintings each brushstroke exactly as exact as they could within the frame, right? 
Yeah, so we had a, a process because we, uh, we had to reimagine Vincent's work for a cinema screen mm-hmm. because Vincent used many different frame sizes. Although we chose the the old fashioned Academy ratio, uh, you know, which is what uh, cinema films, Hollywood films in in the forties, late thirties, forties, and even early fifties had, because that's nearest to the size thirty canvas, which was the one that Vincent used most often. Mm-hmm. So if we chose that ratio, then we'd have to alter Vincent's paintings less than if we'd had a widescreen format or or a, you know a, a HD format. So, but you know, there were instances where there was. Uh, uh, portrait paintings and we had to work out how we were going to adapt the framing for that so so that was one challenge so we actually had uh, a period of six months prior to the production where we had 20 painters who were all doing uh, design paintings which would set the style for the film and so the painting animators they not only had the references from the Van Gogh paintings they also had our kind of design keyframe paintings that they had to follow and once we're in production they had to follow each other because you know if one person has done gachet and and it looks a certain way then you know everyone else has to make sure that the colors and everything matches that otherwise you know he'll just change color from (laughs) shot to shots which would be a bit distracting for the audience and so challenging on many different levels Mm. because each artist as much as you're trying to school them in the technique and style of Vincent van Gogh they also must have their own uh, voice in painting and you have to kind of rein that in I would imagine. Yeah, we had this uh, supervisory system with Drosser at the top, and then underneath her there was a head of painting, Piotr Dominiak, and under that we had six painting supervisors. And when a painting animator started, they had every single frame approved, and then as we felt that they were feeling the style, then it could be that it's every other frame, and, and then, you know, with the painters who were with us the longest time and uh, really were so in tune with Vincent's style, just look at what they were doing every other day um, because they really understood the style. But, for example, I mean, you know, I struggle because I don't come from a painting background, so uh, I can't sit and watch the film and and go, oh, that's so-and-so. But Dorota can, I mean, you know, uh, Pioch can or or the supervisors can. You know, they can sit there and and identify the painter by their style. So there's slight differences between all the painters um, in their their rendition of Van Gogh. But uh, I think an audience, you know, if they look at it a second time, uh, and, and they're thinking about it that they'll see that but that only means that you know that it, it's, th- it's done yeah. by, by different done by people hand. and it's done by hand and yeah. there's no computer which yeah. is levelling it all to be even and in making it all look the and same a, it's done by fluidity when you see it that's stunning stunning from the first frame you just yeah. You know, mouth the gate for for your. I mean, that's one of the uh, lovely listen. things about oil paint is it yes. just it's, it looks like it's it's like you know flowing in front of your eyes. It's it's such a beautiful technique. I mean, um, it is beautiful. And, uh, and, and he has the motion in his painting anyway. Yeah, um, well, there's a lot of vitality, in, and one of the things about Vincent is that he actually um, painted very fast for a painter. I mm. mean, you know, like. Um, painters around him would be doing a painting every two weeks or, or, or even every two months and, and Vincent would do a painting in two hours <laughs> and so you know he was incredibly prolific and and, yeah. it, and he really had this technique where they were very thought out I mean he right. was very intellectual and he was very methodical but it was all kind of pre-planned and then you know when he 
went at the canvas, then his system of painting meant that he could paint with incredible energy. And so that energy comes through when you're standing in front of the yes. originals. And in America, you're incredibly fortunate to, to have, uh, I think, 29 original Van Goghs in, in public uh, Did you go museums. to our Norton Simon? Have you been there? Or? I haven't been to oh, Norton Simon. Oh, it's sweet. And we yeah. do have a nice collection there. Yes, I know. It's but very... I'm sure you've seen so, so many, many. I know you went well, I've been, studied yeah, I, and, uh, I, I managed to, I, I, well, we work with the Van Gogh Museum, right. so I, I went there four times a year, and, and I still go there four times a year, you know, <laughs> so I, I can't bring myself not to keep going there, so, sure. um, and the Krilla Muller Museum and, and National Gallery and Musée d'Orsay and, and the um, museum in Essen, because they've got the Armand uh, Roulon portrait, oh. which is obviously very important for us, because it's in almost every shot in the film, you know. Right, and uh, Douglas Booth did a Fabulous job. Oh, it's lovely working yeah. with him, you know. We needed a very handsome, articulate young man who, who had a bit of an edge to him, and, and, and Douglas did, did a great job with that. If you're just tuning in, this is host Lois P. Jones with our wonderful guest in the studio today, co-producer, co-director Hugh Welchman. There's an uh, avalanche coming to the theaters now to see Loving Vincent. It's gotten all kinds of praises all over the world. Uh, what was one of the statistics you said that you were very happy about the audience award, right? We've been up for 11 audience awards in, in different festivals over the past six months, and we won nine of them. Uh, the best prizes, as far as I'm concerned, is if you get audience prizes. Right. Because you make films for audiences, and and so it, it really means a lot to, to get those awards. I think this film could do what Amadeus did for classical music, for art lovers, and for Vincent van Gogh, because it brings so much to the fore. You want to know more about him. You feel you know more. It's an intimate view of him, and yet the hunger is created for learning more about his work and his life. So that's really a, a major, major achievement in so many ways. Well, we've been uh, amazed at just looking at social media, how much art has been inspired. So a lot of artists have got out their oil paints again. We're seeing a lot of amazing fan art. And also people are sending us poems. I probably should have brought some of those yes. along. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. So, um, but right. yeah, been, uh, people have been sending us poems that that's they've lovely. written inspired by the film. And you know, that, that's great. That's, that's exactly what you want to do. You want to inspire people to, to do their own creative uh, journeys. And you want to inspire them to go and find out more about other people's creative journeys. So I hope it kickstarts people into finding out more about Vincent and, and uh, artists and, and, their, and their own artistic journey. And poets out there, uh, Van Gogh, loved Keats and used to handwrite his poems out to study them. And so he had an appreciation for poetry. This film is poetry. I'm going to read something very, very briefly from an art critic, which I loved. Art critic Estelle Lavat said, people that are afraid to go into an art gallery because they feel intimidated, that want to find out more about the man himself, will really love this film because it's almost like sitting talking to him. You hear him come alive through his paintings. The paintings have sounds, they have words. It's like watching poetry about him. And we love to hear that at the cafe. I want to just uh, touch on one other aspect that I don't get to hear much of, the film score. Mm-hmm. Astonishing, so beautiful. How did you come to choosing the composer? And and it feels like he studied 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Clint Mansell was working on the film long before he knew it <laughs> because <clears throat> we were actually writing the script to his previous scores. So The Fountain, Moon, Requiem for a Dream, wow. Noah. And Dorota was adamant that there was only one person in the world who could actually score this film. And so, you know, we were approaching him. I mean, you know, he's a, a star, a composer. Black Swan, I think. Yeah, yeah. he did Black Swan as well. Mm-hmm. And I think he turned us down like four or five times. And, you know, I was saying... But you to, got Aidan Turner, come on. <laughs> so I said to Dorota, you know, I think it's time we start to think up a list of other people. And she's yeah. like, no, ask him again, ask him again. Wow. So finally, mm-hmm. you know, he agreed to meet us. And we, we met with him and, and he was mainly explaining uh, why he couldn't work on the film and, uh, you know, stop asking me. <laughs> <laughs> so we had this meeting with him. And anyway, so we explained why we wanted him to do the film and talked a bit about the film, showed him some material. And uh, that was like a, a lunchtime meeting. And we'd actually flown over from Poland to London to, to meet with him for like an hour. Um and then we went away and like two hours later, we got a phone call uh, from his agent saying uh, he wants to have dinner with you. And uh, yeah, the, that same day we went and had dinner with him and uh, uh, the next morning he said he wanted to do the film. Fantastic. And he took a fantastic approach to the film, unusual for composers, you know, because they tend to come on right at the end of the project and they're very busy and doing lots of different projects. And, and uh, he really... Uh, wanted to use time on this project. So uh, first of all, he read the letters. Then he read the, uh, one of the main biographies. And it was only then that um, uh, he started to think up his compositions. Then he didn't want to see the film with the temp trap that we had done with his music. So he just wanted to come at it fresh. And it was only after he'd already kind of come up with all of the ideas that, that he then wanted to hear what, what, what we had done in terms of putting his previous music to the score. So, yeah, he really invested a lot of emotional energy into this score, uh, which I think really comes across in, 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 oh, in the pain does. of the music. And I, and what, what Clint is really amazing at is he can devastate you and he can uplift you at the same time, and that's so appropriate for yes, Vincent. Yes, you know. yes. Uh, the particular music for Sower yes. in the field, you felt that dynamic, exactly that. Yeah. You felt the sun, the motion of the sun, the devastation, the cycle of life and death, but you felt also the uplifting aspect of it. It was beautiful. Yeah, he really felt Vincent's uh, journey when he was writing the music, and, and that's why it's just so appropriate to the film and is a huge contribution to how you feel after experiencing the film. So, uh, you know, he was our hero, and, and it's nice to work with your heroes, and, and they actually live up to and exceed everything that you thought about them, you know. And a big thanks to Dorota for uh, being persistent and, you know, getting what she wanted because the film score can ruin a film too yeah. uh, and a film of a caliber like this really needed just the most sensitive top score and it's beautiful uh, we're running out of time now and um, I wonder if you could or would be able to take us out with another quote from Vincent uh, well I mean one of my favourite ones is you know uh, I dream my paintings and I paint my dreams beautiful 
Thank you, Hugh, for coming to Poets Cafe. This is host Lois P. Jones, and our guest today has been co-director and co-producer of Loving Vincent, Hugh Welchman. Thanks to our master chef, Marlena Bond. Look for us on the Poets Cafe fan page on Facebook. You've been listening to Poets Cafe on Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond. Catch the breeze and winter chills In colors on the snowy linen land Now I understand What you tried to say to me How you suffered for your sanity How you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now Starry, starry night Flaming flowers that brightly blaze Swirling clouds in violet haze Reflect in Vincent's eyes of china blue Colors changing hue Morning fields of amber grain Weathered faces lined in pain Are soothed beneath the artist's loving hand Oh, now I understand You tried to say to me How you suffered for your sanity How you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now For they could not love you, love you But still your love was true Inside on that starry, starry night, you took your life as lovers often do. But I could have told you, Vincent, this world was never made for one as beautiful as you. Portraits hung in empty halls Frameless heads on nameless walls With eyes that watch the world and can't forget Like the strangers that you've met The ragged men in ragged clothes The silver thorn of a bloody rose Like crushed and broken virgin snow Now I think I know What you tried to say to me How you suffered for your sanity How you tried to set them free They would not listen They're not listening still Perhaps they never 